KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. Rebecca, today I would like to talk about facts. Okay, great. So, like, the facts of life, my favorite TV show? Mm, or like facts like the birds and the bees and that's how babies are made? Mm, well, I love talking about all of those things, but more like there are facts in the world, despite some people attempting to create a post-fact world. For example, fact. Vaccines save lives. Oh, okay. Those kinds of facts. Got it. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. like fact. Climate change is real and it is caused by human behavior. Yes. And fact, protecting the environment also means protecting things like our drinking water and our air. And the fact that we need both of those things to survive. Um, Also, if the air is terrible for one person, it's probably soon to get terrible for all people. Another fact, these are all shared resources. Mm -hmm. So we know that sometimes that's hard to accept, this idea of shared resources, which is kind of understandable because depending on where we live and what we have access to, we make a lot of assumptions about what we should expect every day is just a basic part of our lives. Speaking of which, just going to take a water break and drink some clean water. Mm. Mm, delicious water. Mm, so good. So like this may seem obvious, but when I'm home in Los Angeles, I assume I will always be able to drink from the tap. But when I go visit my family in El Salvador, right, the water safety is questionable. I drink filtered water there, but not everyone can access filtered water. Duh. And that has a ton of downstream effects. Right. And I think, you know, we tend to think that when... When there's a scarcity of resources um, and that is true for people in other places or in other countries, like that that's somehow okay, which of course it's not. And of course, this is also happening in the U.S. Like, just look at Flint. Um, And I think what we can all agree on is that it's a moral fact that everybody deserves to drink clean water and breathe clean air. We don't all get to. However, we all can be part of the fight to help make that happen. Speaking of fighters, today we are talking to Ria Sa, president of the National Resources Defense Council, which is the leading environmental action group in the U.S. If you're not familiar with them, they're basically the ACLU for the environment. Um, So because she's such a badass and fighting so hard, I wonder, Amy, who do you think will play Ria in the Aaron Brockovich style movie of her life? Such a good question, because I don't think it's going to be Julia Roberts. Not that Rhea doesn't deserve Julia Roberts, but I don't think that Julia has the right um, skin tone, maybe, (laughs) because Rhea is also a first-generation Korean-American mashup, grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Don't worry, guys. Rebecca's here to make sure that things don't get too Korean on the show, which honestly, I mean, that's a risk we take when mashups does basically anything. Right. That's just another fact, you guys. So with that, (laughs) on to the show. It's Rhea, not Rhea. Is that correct? Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes, you are pronouncing it okay. correctly. I have a, a Greek friend named Rhea. So I'll yeah, no, I'm chuckling because my last name and my first name are, uh, I've mispronounced both of them <laughs> for most of my life. So my, I mean, it's, it is a Greek name. So the pro- proper Greek pronunciation is Rhea, but I say Rhea. And then my last name is Sa, but I grew up in 
Colorado, where after probably a decade of trying to get people to actually just say our name in exactly the way it's spelled, we just were like, okay, whatever, Sue's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it it should be Reyesa. I feel you because there were definitely like years of my life where white people would tell me that it's Che, not Choi, and mm-hmm. I was like, listen, <laughs> I know that in Korea it's different. Yeah. But we're here, and this is what my dad decided in 1974, so this is what we're doing. No, I know. I know. So what did your parents... It's Choi. Yeah. So. Yeah. Riasa, how do you mash up? I'm a Korean-American. I'm an environmentalist, and I'm a patriot. I'm a mother, and I'm an executive. I think in more of a a deeper sense, uh, the fact that I am, you know, a child of immigrants and I was raised with uh, a very clear uh, understanding of the sacrifices that were made by my parents and their parents before them and a set of responsibilities about what that meant for me in terms of my life and my decisions. It's in large part why I chose the career that I chose. Um, uh, I've actually always been in public service and uh, I think it really is just uh, this sense that was ingrained in me from a very, very young age mm-hmm. that um, it was my responsibility to uh, to pursue that dream. And that dream uh, wasn't going to materialize uh, without a lot of work. And, and from my angle, again, working primarily in the public sector my entire life in government, the American dream doesn't happen by happenstance. It happens because all of us work to perfect it every single day. Right. So really investing in the reality that um, a lot of what I think makes America great and frankly a lot of the things that we feel particularly challenged about now with this new administration, it's very clear that we have to fight for them. We can't accept the fact that these uh, per, uh, these are things that we we have believed were status quo or have believed were our rights or have believed were the social norms in our country. These are things that every day we have to stand up right. um, and again fight for. And that's so, I mean, that's something that has been a big shift for us is that in the years that we've been doing this work with Mashup America, I think we started with the idea that this was a celebration mm-hmm. again. And in the past six months, it's become a, a cause. Yeah. It's the same work. And we like to think like we're now, we now have just more knowledge mm-hmm. about the, the marketplace that we're in mm-hmm. and the ideas that people have. But so your immigrant background has really shaped your vision of how, like, of America, how much you work for it, your kind of responsibility to fulfill those dreams and to and to serve. How has your Koreanness impacted your uh, relationship to nature and to the environment that kind of took on the direction or the field that you were going to be working in? Again, my my experience of being Korean is in the unique situation of being a Korean within America. Quite frankly, when I was growing up, I mean, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, a lot of the reason why I think I'm an environmentalist is that I had this just beautiful tapestry as my backyard. Um, and my parents and my sisters and I would often spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And so having barbecues or having picnics or doing hikes and, you know, getting out the barbecue pan and making galbi on the banks of the rivers that were floating by. I mean, that was as natural to me as, you know, strapping on a pair of skis. So that sounds so beautiful. (laughs) 
That's the only. I just want to be clear. That's the only kind of campaign I'm willing to do. <laughs> when somebody's making coffee on the side. Troop Beverly Hills oh, no, over I'm, here. Well, so I'm I, going to your Galbi camping party. None of this crap no, with the beans no, I know, and the cans. Forget about the like freeze dried food. I thought Ew. camping food was gimpop, right? So, of course. Like, you know, tell me that it's not, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be a camper anymore. <laughs> There's also, I think, that intangible sense of magic or sparking the imagination. How is a kid changed by seeing a butterfly? Mm-hmm. Like, what was your first memory of that of that magic of that seeing a butterfly? Or I'm not sure if it was my first memory, but I have a very um, strong memory of uh, being in the Rocky Mountains, and I was actually working as a volunteer. Uh, building a trail on the Continental Divide. Um, so I was in... Uh, that sounds... I like how casual you say that. <laughs> I was just volunteering in the Rocky Mountains, building a trail on the Continental Divide. Um, <laughs> it was an interesting experience. I will say it was more dirty than I have ever been in my entire life. Um, uh, but it was pretty remarkable. And I think the the moment that sticks with me from that five, six-week experience uh, was that I did a hike by myself kind of at dusk one day. I was probably 13,000 feet in this kind of area of the forest by myself. And I heard this kind of thumping noise and I just started freaking out. I was like, oh my God, is there some, is there like an animal? Is there somebody following me? Um, And it literally took me two or three minutes to realize that it was the beating of my own heart, that I had (gasps) never actually been in a place where it was so still and so quiet that you could hear your own heartbeat. Being able to kind of have those experiences in the wild, they are transformative. There are many stories, I think, about, you know, what it means to be a person of color outdoors and what it means to have like a black body outside mm-hmm. or, you know, how in America, the idea of being active in the environment or being an avid outdoors person or even just loving the experience of being that, that that's for white people that shop at REI. Yeah. Did that, was that something that permeated your brain? Absolutely. I mean, I think. I mean, you did live in Boulder. Let's that's talk about that. I did live in Boulder and, and, you know, Boulder at that time and I think probably still today is, is pretty white. And I think uh, the archetype of what most people think of environmentalists, it is the Patagonia clad outdoors person that is more than often a white person. And I feel like I've been eschewing that kind of my whole career in the environmental space, both from the perspective of literally people saying to me, and, and this wasn't that long ago in my career, like you just don't look the type, right? You can't really work on Western public lands because you don't have that big belt buckle and you don't have the cowboy boots and you're not white or, you know, you're not the kind of, again, you're not the kind of typical person that um, is going to be behind the counter at a Patagonia store. I think that just... Really, no shade to Patagonia. They do great work. It's a fantastic company. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but I, I really do think that, uh, frankly, it's 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 a label that in many ways really undermines what the environmental movement's actually all about. And it's, again, a label that I've personally been trying to issue, but a label that I feel the environmental community needs to do a better job issuing, um, really defining the work that we do um, in the movement as work that is on behalf of all of us. So it doesn't matter whether you, um, you know, we recreate in the greatest national parks in the country, or if you're just uh, a mother 
mother trying to take care of your kids and, um, you know, give them glasses of water. The environment affects us all. And I think if you boil it down to the very basic rights and standards and values that we have as Americans, you are able to kind of really tr- truly see the essence of why the environmental movement began, the essence of why the environmental movement is so critical today. Mm-hmm. It, it is really about these common values, but it's also about these basic rights. So, so is it our basic right to turn on our faucets and put a glass of water underneath them and drink the water without mm-hmm. fear that that water is going to be poisoned? Most people in this country think it's their right, right? Um, is it our right to go out and not be choked in smog in whatever city that we live in this country? I mean, the reality of the the fabric of environmental laws that we have in this country, they're meant to protect us all. They're meant to protect that basic right that's afforded by all of us. Now, back to this question of you know how the environmental movement's perceived. I do think there's more and greater opportunity for us collectively to be laying out the more basic case for why environmentalism matters. And frankly, there's also a lot more opportunity and need for the environmental community itself to really start to diversify from within. Right. You know, that intersection of environmentalism and social justice, is that something that has it seems to be emerging more in the mainstream conversation. I think because recently, more like if you look at Flint, it's like people suddenly are like, what, you can't just drink the water? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's like obviously linked to systemic racism and poverty and this and that. And it's not just like, oh, you should recycle. I mean, I agree with you. I think that the intersections between social justice, um, equity, environmental justice, and general environmental kind of issues are becoming more and more clear, unfortunately, because there are more and more examples of where um, we are basically depriving people of basic human rights because of our inability to either maintain or enforce the laws that are on the books. Flint's obviously a great example of how that system has broken down and failed a community of 100,000 people, um, low-income, a lot of communities of color there. Um, but it's not the only example. Right. And and I think the thing that we all collectively need to realize is that systemic racism and environmental injustice has been connected for basically time immemorial in this country. And there are communities that have borne a larger burden of environmental toxicity through our history and pointing a spotlight to that, the environmental community taking a greater responsibility around trying to fight for that so that it's not just simply let's protect the beautiful areas, but let's protect all people for this basic right we believe is, again, uniquely American. Uh, While it may seem ludicrous that we're in a situation where we would have to um, rely on bottled water, where where government wouldn't necessarily regulate um, any of the commons that we all rely and are dependent upon, that's unfortunately the world that we're moving into. I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's like not like Republicans get to breathe different air. (laughs) Yeah. Like we all walk around in the same place. Hola. Please give us Cinco Estrellas on iTunes. It helps people find us and it also makes us feel really good. iTunes.com slash mashup Cinco Estrellas. Gracias. Bye. It wasn't easy. 
So to not be dense, but to be dense, there are so many facts that point towards it. And I assume there's a some kind of immediate business case for denying climate change. But I, I wonder, why are people denying climate change? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Rebecca, I think that your earlier point that there is there is, I think, a business um, challenge uh, to climate change that, quite frankly, is probably the leading edge of why we've seen as much resistance to the progress that we need to make um, as a country and as a world. But beyond the business case, I think it's really important to understand that the larger narrative that has now been spun around climate uh, for the past 20 years um, includes a narrative around and the seeds around the role, shape, scope, size of government. Do we really trust government? Is government there for us or against us? Who who are these government scientists that are making these projections and these decisions? It's the seeds of doubt that I think have really blossomed into this colossal denial apparatus that not only prevents us from achieving the kinds of actions that we need on climate, but is frankly preventing us from seeing the kind of government um, for the people, by the people that we all, I think, thought we deserved or expected or, or is required. Um, and so I think it's broader than just what's happening on the climate front from a business angle of the businesses that frankly are um, going to have impact on their bottom line because they're fossil fuel producing companies and fossil fuels are contributor to climate change. It, it's unfortunately a little bit more complicated than that. Denial apparatus. Yeah, and also sh short-sighted. What have you noticed or learned about kind of different cultural approaches to the environment and environmentalism? So I think in general, in most other countries, there is much more of an obvious intersection between human rights and environmental issues than there have been in this country. Uh, and again, I think we're now facing a point in our history and uh, reality where we're going to see that intersection played out in a lot more concrete ways. And again, I think that intersection of democracy, of people's rights, of human rights, of environmental rights, you see that much more viscerally, visibly in lots of other places aside from the United States. But again, things are changing. What's one thing that every individual can actually do specifically to help improve the environment? Like, is it not buying co products from certain corporation or is it not flushing our toilets? <laughs> or is it like not buying clothes for a year? Yeah. Or, you know, I, it's something where like, especially if you want to be educated, you take in a lot of information. You're like, ah, everything I do is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you don't do anything. Right. No, I mean so I actually think that this is a super interesting conversation because so many of the the kind of ideas that you've just thrown out there are around kind of prohibitions, right? They're around the sense of like I should not do something or I should constrain myself in some way or it's a sacrifice and I think um I think mm -hmm. there the, certainly there are ways for again all of us to make wiser choices. Um but that those choices don't necessarily mean sacrifice, right? It's not that we're going to go hungry just because we don't kind of get a smorgasbord in every meal, right. right? So it's less about how do I deprive myself of something, but how do I live a, a life that's simpler? And how do I live a life that's richer with meaning? And, um, you know, if I'm going to have a, a splurge, I'm going to splurge on something that I can really value as opposed to something that's disposable. 
I, I would like to say that I think the most important thing that anybody who cares about the environment, whether you've thought about it a lot, whether you consider yourself environmentalist, given the reality of not only what we're facing with climate change, but what we're facing politically with the real attacks on the basic framework of the environmental laws that we have in this country is get active. Like to, now is the time to get active. And you don't have to... Again, I, I hate to bring up Patagonia because they're such a great company. You don't have to have a Patagonia jacket to go out there and protest with us, right? Or a you don't Columbia have jacket to, or REI. Right? Like or... This, this, no matter where you live, what you look like, how much money you make, right? It is your right as an American to have both the heritage that we have in our public resources as Americans and the rights that are indoctrinated in the statutes that we've created to have clean air and clean water. I think most people agree with that, whether they're Republican or Democratic. Right. Um, and the unfortunate reality is that those very things are threatened. So how can you get active, whether it's in your local um, uh, set of opportunities or in national sets of opportunities? There's never been, I think, more of an exciting time to kind of stand up and get engaged. And there's never been, frankly, in my lifetime, more of a need to have more people stand up and get engaged. I did my best to notice when the call came down the line Up to the platform of surrender I was brought but I was kind You guys, it's Podcast Awareness Month. Everyone needs a cause, right? Time to tell a friend about a podcast they'll love right now. Think of a friend, your mom, anyone you care about. What podcast would they love? Holding. Okay, do you have it? Should I guess? No, but seriously. Okay, go share it. Call them, text them, Insta them. And if they don't know about podcasts, hi, mom. Show them how. Tell us what you recommended with the hashtag tripod. T-R-Y-P-O-D. And I'm on my knees looking for the answer. Are we human? What's the biggest challenge ahead for the environmental movement? The easy answer to that, and I don't mean to be flippant, is Donald Trump. Um, we have never, ever seen the level of aggressive attack that we're seeing on um, environmental principles. Um, and it's not just from the administration. It's from his fellow uh, congressional Republicans. It's a systematic attack from both the legislative and the executive sides. Uh, and it's deeply, deeply concerning. So it's not simply let's repeal the things that we didn't agree uh, with from the Obama administration. Um, it's not simply, you know, the entire world, literally, like I think even North Korea signed on to the Paris agreements and now we're the outlier saying we don't believe in climate change. I mean, um, that's never a good so thing. It's not North just, Korea seems more reasonable yeah, than we do. No, I know. Kind of shocking. <laughs> so it's not just those things. It's that they're actually going after the underlying statutes that were created basically when I was born in the 70s, uh, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. All of these acts are regulatory in nature and they're going after regulation. I mean, he just signed an executive order and, and it's completely 
characteristic of, of his style, but uh, his executive order said for every new regulation the government puts in place, we're going to get rid of two. It's just absurd to think about like, well, so what two? Are we going to care less about children's health and less about um, drinking water standards um, because we want to implement something around air quality standards? I mean, it just is nonsensical. It's not a rational scientific data, uh, data kind of uh, or analytical approach to thinking through policy. It's not an approach to thinking through the obligations that government has around public health. And it's not an approach, frankly, to thinking about government's responsibility for the public trust, right? So the public trust isn't just our democracy. The public trust is are the commons that we all uniquely depend upon. So who's going to take responsibility for that? Um, as we've seen in other countries and as we've seen prior to the advent of these laws in our, our own country, um, when you leave it up to corporate interests, the bottom line doesn't necessarily take care of those common interests. Right. So I do think that is the biggest single threat um, that we are facing right now, and it's a pretty systemic threat. How do you keep your courage or where do you find your courage? Because I think on the surface, you know, Donald Trump is the biggest threat to the environment and the biggest challenge we have to to maintain the public trust in these common grounds. You know, you're a woman, you're identifies, you know, from an immigrant background, you're a person of color, and you're an activist. You're being attacked from all these levels from this threat. How do you stay brave? That's a really good question. I don't actually consider myself a fearless person. Um, I think I have kind of the same vulnerabilities as everybody else. I, I think it's more that I believe so strongly in my convictions. Um, and I believe that they're not just my convictions or the convictions of my organization. I believe that they're convictions that transcend us as a country, us as a people, us, you know, as Democrats and as Republicans. These are basic rights. And um, I, I'm not fearful about speaking up on behalf of that. I think it's mm-hmm. it's not only common sense. I think it's unfortunately um, exactly what's required for the moment. And so as much common sense as I can speak to the crazy rhetoric that we're seeing, I'm happy to be the conduit to do that. I, I feel like it's not just a responsibility. It's like a real conviction and set of values that I believe strongly uh, in and I believe strongly, again, most people <laughs> share. Pretty badass. We're ready to like follow you into battle. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, I'm in. we're in. I mean, okay. So a few more questions. We understand, and I'll say this as the only non-Korean in this conversation, <laughs> but uh, that Koreans have an obsession with protecting their skin. That's a true story. And we, um, in fact, we have our own uh, article on our site that Amy put together, which is a guide to Korean skincare for non-Koreans. It's very confusing. What do you do to protect your skin from the sun, given how much time you spend outdoors? Well, I am probably the worst Korean to ask that question of. But um, I'm looking at you and you have flawless skin. No, 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 no. There's... So I, I grew up in Colorado and, you know, I was just uh, similar to lots of kids. Like I hated the sunscreen moment. And then now as mothers, we're just like, oh, my God, can you just stick that sunscreen on your face? Um, you know, so lots of really bad SPF rays hitting my face all the time. So I, I did not. And, and at altitude. So it's even worse up there. But. I did not, I think, have a very good skincare regimen. Do you um, do the beekeeper thing now? <laughs> That's what my husband calls it. He's like, when are you going to go full Ajima with the beekeeper and the veil? I do not do the beekeeper. I swear to God, I like get the 
over-the-counter oil of Olay that's combination moisturizer and sunscreen. I'm like putting my Korean sisters to shame right now. I am so sorry. Seriously. And I probably should read that guide that's on your website because I could learn a lot. We will send it to you. The aunties are pissed right now. I know. I'm sorry. That's okay. Neon A. (laughs) Wait, so, okay. What is your Bubba Meister? So I have this really weird uh, fear of whistling at night because my mom... Once told me that in Korea, <laughs> whistling at night would kind of conjure the spirits, right? Like that it would, it was like a call to the ghosts. And so literally, like, I think I, she told me that when I was three years old and I'm still freaked out, like 40s, I'm almost 47 years old and I'm still freaked out about whistling at night. So whether that's a real thing or whether that was something that my mom just told me to get me to shut up, I'm not sure, <laughs> but gosh darn it, I'm not ever going to whistle at night. I'm still scared. <laughs> My mom had like a cat's turn into the spirits at night. That's why that we could never have a cat. Um, <laughs> and then also that like, in you know, when you have the big like 20 pound bag of rice, that when you scooped out the right, like the two cups or whatever you, that you were making for the dinner for the meal, that you always had to, when you put the cup back into the rice bag, that it had to be full. Otherwise you would run out of luck. Like you always had to have a full cup in your rice bag. And I was like, I didn't. You know, it kind of yeah. makes sense, but I know that's See, how luck works, you guys. <laughs> well, unfortunately, now you've told me that story, and, and I will forever be. <laughs> I know that's a thing. Sure that that little cup in my rice bag is totally full. Oh, you're welcome, Rhea. <laughs> I mean, this was a super fun interview, and thank you for having me. Of really, course. like this is this is great. Thank you. Don't wanna be an American So I am now super pumped to fight this climate change denying inhumane demon who doesn't seem to believe that everybody uh, deserves the right to breathe air and drink water. Mm-hmm. Yes, we can. Si se puede. Si se puede. And also, I think I probably need to get rid of my Volkswagen diesel car, which apparently is polluting the earth. Um, <laughs> yeah, on let's a personal get on that. Note. Yeah. <laughs> so you can become a member of the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council at nrdc.org. Also, if you want to follow Riasa on the socials, in addition to following her into battle against the climate change deniers, mm-hmm. she's on Twitter and Insta at Riasa, which is R-H-E-A-S-U-H. Remember, it's Ria, not Rhea. And suh, not so. The Mash of Americans are me, Rebecca Lehrer. <laughs> and me, Amy Choi. Our producer today was Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Let's get outside today. Okay, bye. Going outside. Talk the shit,